China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Yen Meixie, the Geopolitics Analyst at GovCall Research. Today we'll be discussing her recent client notes on Chinese overcapacity and its EV sector. Yenmei, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jude. First question I'd like to ask you is about your career trajectory. We met when you were in Beijing. Then as now, you had a focus on Chinese politics, political economy. How did you get into this? How did you get interested in China's political system? Right. So I think my career in China study, I guess, is pretty stereotypical. So I was born Chinese, grew up in China, educated in China until I graduated from college, and then I went to the U.S. for studied communications and then studied finance. So I think there were a couple of pivotal moments in my life. You know, when I was growing up in China, of course, I took the Chinese system for granted and thought that's just how the, every country, every economy was run. And then I went to the United States、uh, and had a bit of a shocker, you know, cultural shock, economic and political shock, and saw an entirely different way of running the society, running the politics, and, and also manage the economy. And I took it also for granted that this was how things were supposed to be run, right? So my education in finance was very much steeped in. Neoliberal, classic neoliberal economics about efficiency, about laissez-faire, about how market is the best at allocating resources. And then, after working in the U.S. in actually as a reporter in Congress, I went back to Beijing as a researcher first as international relations analyst, and then joined Gavakal Dragonomics as a political economy analyst. And then I got another whole new education of, and started to kind of look at a lot of the neoliberal economic doctrines with new lenses. Actually, with the help or edification, a lot of my colleagues, we all know them well, Arthur Kroeber, Andrew Batson. On a way, my career is kind of stereotypical. A Chinese person studied China. On the other side, have had the fortunate experiences of of shuttling between systems and. Looking at different political economic systems with, with different lenses. Can you describe for those who don't have Gavco subscriptions or clients? And, and just a note to listeners: please contact Gavco to become a loyal paying customer. Their notes are just absolutely fantastic. They have a lot of great analysts. But Yemi, can you describe what does a day look like for you? How do you select topics? What does work look like for you? You're now you're not in China anymore. What does research look like? I'm not in China anymore, so I'm, I'm now looking more through the lens of China's relationship with the rest of the world. And my role is quite different from most of my colleagues. A lot of my colleagues are very, you know, as you said, very smart, very capable analysts. They're more quantitative analysts on, say, the Chinese economy or U.S. economy, European economy, their financial systems or their monetary policies. I am more a qualitative person. I like to say I'm an analyst of things that cannot be measured by numbers. So now I have the title of geopolitics. I look at things,、uh, geopolitical events that can have economic or market implications,、uh, and how do I select topics? I think it's a through a Venn diagram of my own interest and what clients are interested. All right, so I kind of. 
through broad-based reading, as well as talking with smart colleagues like you, kind of get the ideas of what's, what are the geopolitical events, what are pressing ones on people's mind. And clients also send us emails or give us calls or ask us questions during meetings about the geopolitical questions on top of their mind. With a combination of those, that's how we select the, our research areas. The reason we're talking today is a few pieces that you've written recently, one in the FT and then two are, are recent-ish notes, client notes that you wrote, but all have the common theme of overcapacity, Chinese overcapacity. Specifically, you're looking at the electronic vehicle sector and the surge of exports of companies like BYD. That's sort of the tip of the iceberg of what's visible, but underneath it is a really fascinating political economy story about how China's institutional setup political system and its very interesting market creates these surges in capacity across sectors. And this has just happened wave after wave, sector after sector. When I was living in Beijing at the conference board around 2015, 2016, we were doing a lot of work on steel and cement overcapacity. And this is obviously a big story right now in Europe as China tries to, in part, export its way out of its economic slowdown. Let's start, though, with overcapacity in a more generic sense. It's not something I think a lot of citizens of market economies deal with or see a lot or even really understand. So can you just define at an abstract level, what is overcapacity in the Chinese context? I think just fundamentally, overcapacity means there's a lot of supply and not enough demand. That happens because I think the Chinese policy always focus on stimulating supply. And that is still the case today. And also because the Chinese system, you know, throughout every ministries in the central government, every local governments, all the corporations, state-owned or private, they have been conditioned to be very responsive to policy incentives. And so if when there is supply stimulus, every agency, every local government and every entity in the Chinese economy are mobilized to produce. And in the meantime, the demand, I think, are not as, is, you know, because these are individuals and, and they're not necessarily as responsive to the policy stimulus. So that can create this lopsided, uh, you know, supply, big supply and not, not sufficient demand. You're right, as you said, a lot of the, the excessive capacity has been absorbed through export. But I think you notice that this is a big topic right now, catching a lot of attention globally, because the Chinese export of excessive capacity is a bigger problem now than before. One, because, as you mentioned, it's one thing to accept importing a lot of Chinese steel and cement, relatively simple technologically and relatively low value added, versus accepting deindustrialization by Chinese overcapacity in sectors like automobile, uh, much more high tech, uh, higher value added, and also much more complicated systems and, and arguably just more central to any industrialized country's industrial health. Hence, we're seeing a lot more attention, a lot more pushback on the Chinese overcapacity. I just want to linger on the policy angle of this first. You have a recent 
FT op-ed that's from February 4th, so just a few weeks ago. We're recording this on February 20th, and it's called China's Call of EV Overcapacity Will Bring Little Relief to Europe. You write, overcapacity is a chronic affliction of Chinese industrial policy. Like an adaptable virus, it is difficult to eliminate and requires continuous suppression, which often takes the form of government-orchestrated industry consolidation. I wonder if we can go back again into the trenches of central, provincial, and local government decision-making here. Because on the one hand, overcapacity is not always something celebrated by central policymakers in Beijing. They often find it a scourge. Things like supply-side structural reform, which came out in, I forget, 2015 or so, you know, was designed to, one of the planks of it was to go after chronic industrial overcapacity in all of these sectors, which was holding, holding down prices. Can you talk again about why, if it is this adaptable virus that the central government is trying to stamp out, what does it look like on the ground that creates this overcapacity? You, you had this really arresting statistic in your FT piece you say in 2014 alone, more than 80,000 companies in China registered to enter the electronics vehicle sector, more than doubling the previous year's number of new registrants. What happens? What signals are being sent? What policies roll out where you basically have nearly 100,000 companies rushing into this new EV sector? The electric vehicle sector is absolutely a fascinating story. I think it's also a big educational experience to myself analyzing it. So the first time I looked at the industry in China, it was 2016. At that time, I think, again, I was still very much caught up in all those efficiency, neoliberal economic doctrines. And I looked at it and thought this absolutely could not work. Why? Because at that time, I think each passenger vehicle could receive up to about 17,000, 19,000 US, US dollar subsidy, right? So it's central government has central subsidies and the local government can match the subsidy by up to 100%. And then in addition, on the production side, there were subsidies to companies in the terms of cheap land, uh, you know, cheap energy, and then production credit. It an absolute fading frenzy for a lot of these companies to enter the industry. And then a lot of these companies ended up being quite low tech, low value added. So there were these low speed, low range, low tech electric vehicle calls that were no, not much better than, than scooters. And then because of this, local government also were incentivized to install protection, local protectionist policy to attract production into their cities, into their provinces, right? So they rolled out a slew of subsidies. And then to tie local production to the subsidy, to subsidy eligibility. So even those in those days, even BYD had to scatter their production facilities into different provinces or cities in order to qualify for those local subsidies. And another layer of a local incentive was to buy electric vehicles into the local taxi fleet or local bus fleet. Oftentimes, they were just sitting idle, not running on the road. But again, you know, they take the number, therefore, they were eligible for, for central government subsidies. And in those years, there was a very peculiar phenomenon. So reliably, at the end of each year, the EV sales in China would surge. 
And then when you look in, look into the data in detail, it was not, it was not that this, you know, consumer suddenly found electric vehicles more appealing at the end of the year, but it was because local governments, they had annual sales target to meet. Therefore, they accelerated procurement for, you know, the taxi fleet, government vehicles for electric buses and just bought a bunch of them. Hence, they can say that they have in their locality, they have met X number of electric vehicles by, by the end of the year, right? So when I looked at that picture and I met, I decided that this was just another massive waste of industrial policy. There was no way that from this wasteful spending, from local protectionism and fragmented industry, there could emerge global leaders in electric vehicles. And I was massive, massively wrong. So I think actually from this overcapacity that created a fiercely competitive industry because Chinese companies themselves had to fight rounds and rounds of price wars. And two, because the Chinese government has been also very skillful at dealing with overcapacity throughout decades and through many sectors they have put their industrial policy focus on. Uh, so there have been several rounds of calling of overcapacity by one, raising the license standards for uh, company entry for production licenses. Uh, and then two, they gradually withdraw subsidies and they start with the low range, low speed end, right? So they call those uh, low value added, low tech companies first. And then the, the industry leaders then uh, started to emerge from uh, this quite brutal competition. That's why now we have the, you know, the BYDs of China. So can I ask you if this pattern describes the sort of overcapacity story in EVs, but also in other sectors? Chinese central government identifies something as being important. So in this case with EVs in, in 2009, China says, okay, this is a strategic emerging industry. I feel like Beijing knows what's going to happen next, which is they put out their own policy inducements. They know the political economies and they know local governments are going to do the same. They know they're going to have this wave of new entrants. They put up the barriers so that there's no foreign competition when the industry is is in its infancy. They allow this very cutthroat competition to occur. And then they know at some point, they'll now start tapping on the brakes and let the fittest, in a Darwinian sense, they'll let the fittest sort of survive. And now they will have scaled up in a protected domestic market Definitely, there's waste and inefficiency, but if you want to make an omelet, you've got to break some eggs. And so then once they have this strong domestic champions, then they unleash them on the world. And then maybe they start allowing some foreign competition domestically in China because they know at this point they've created some pretty sizable behemoths. Is that story resonate with you in, at a structural level in terms of what we're seeing here? Absolutely. So I think you just uh, narrated an ingredient uh, for, for the omelet that I forgot to mention, which is the protectionism and also the strategic withdrawal of protection. Right? So when the industry was at the infant stage, the protectionist wall was very high. So China designed the subsidy eligibility requirements to exclude both EV battery, foreign battery makers as well as foreign car makers. 
and then to allow these Chinese infant producers to grow up in, in a relatively safe environment. And then when the government felt perhaps these companies were teenagers, not infant anymore, they select, they kind of lowered the wall a little bit, right? So it's 2019, China allowed Tesla to come and establish a mega factory in Shanghai. And Tesla was able to, one, establish the factory without the usual joint venture or uh, requirement. And two, Tesla was eligible for the full suite of support. And in those couple of years, even the BYD was knocked back. I think BYD founder was saying their only goal was survival. They, they lost market shares and the sales were struggling. But also, again, uh, they proved that they were able to adapt to fierce competition. So BYD came up with a new battery called the Blade, which can charge faster, power a car on a longer range, and it's also more compact. And then just in a couple of years, BYD not only recovered its domestic market share, now it's, I think, it's going to knock Tesla off the perch as the number one seller of EV in the world. The Chinese have a phrase called introducing the catfish into the sardine tank. So they kind of introduced the fierce catfish into the tank to call the weak and make the, the strong ones run faster. Now that we have some of these running faster, and again, BYD is a really good example of this. Let me pivot now to talk about what it looks like when this industrial machine then starts exporting its products. As you say, it's one thing when you're having relatively low technology outputs like steel, which going onto the global market. And while you do have some pockets of frustration arising, it's not like the United States, for example, has the most robust global steel sector. The story is different when you're talking about Europe and automobiles. There is now just a, an acute sense of, as you said before, deindustrialization as you see waves of lower priced, very good EVs now coming into the market. So what is your sense of how concerned European capitals are about this? And what is your sense on how, let's take Germany, for example, what is the playbook for Germany in how they're going to deal with this? And the complication I'd be curious for your insights on, does the fact that German automakers continue to rely on China as a growth market, does that constrain room for German policymakers to take punitive actions to try to limit this this import flux out of a concern that China will retaliate against German automakers in, in their market? So let me start with a broad picture about the trade frictions that kind of Chinese overcapacity is creating, particularly in developed countries. I think several things have changed fundamentally that will influence uh, China's trade relations with these countries for years to come. One, you know, we're talking about the, the China has ascended the value chain. It's the countries like the US, like Europe, they may be willing to absorb Chinese exports in cement, steel, you know, textile, paper. It's much harder. They're much unwilling, much more unwilling to absorb Chinese exports in the much more valuable and much, much more technologically complex exports, such as in cars, and possibly soon passenger airlines. And then two, another bargain that Western countries have had to China is breaking down. Right? In, in the past, it was China was exporting a lot, but also buying a lot. 
Now, the Chinese demand has been softening, especially in the post-COVID recovery. But then Chinese exports has still remained very uh, robust and may expand in the coming years as China doubled down on supply-side stimulus, doubled down on industrial policy. So these countries feel they are getting worse and worse deal trading with China. And three, I think there was an implicit or explicit grand bargaining of Western countries, you know, economic exchange with China, which I think can be summarized as political liberalization in exchange for economic development and prosperity. Or in Germany, the, the catchphrase used to be change through trade. And today, nobody believes in that anymore, right? So nobody, I think, <laughs> in the West believes that China is on a liberalization trajectory. So then there's the political justification for trade and for powering the China's ongoing economic growth as well as technological upgrade through Western markets that has broken down. So I think that all these are contributing to what we saw first trade war between US and China and now possibly trade war between uh, Europe and China. And I think Europe is now coming to the picture because one, they cannot allow their auto industry to be deindustrialized. It's just too central to the European economy and to the, it, it, it is the European industrial backbone. And especially at a time when the, when the European economy and European manufacturers are struggling, they're struggling with high energy price, high wage. And then, so the anxiety about deindustrialization through China is very high in Europe. Also, they have the, the story, the cautionary tale of solar panel in their mind. So a few years ago, Europeans started anti-dumping, anti-subsidy investigation on solar panels. And China retaliated and sort of like, through negotiations and forced Europe to back down, mainly you know, by threatening German luxury cars and pressured then German Chancellor Angela Merkel to pressure on Brussels to have a negotiated settlement on solar panels with China. And now the outcome of that is very obvious. The outcome is the, pretty much the annihilation of the European solar panel industry. And what's left of the so-called European solar industry is the installers, utilities. And then they are now actually advocating on behalf of Chinese manufacturers because they want to keep, be able to keep importing cheap Chinese solar panels. And then, you know, the, the manufacturers have gone uh, extinct. So Europeans have that, that story in their mind and they don't want to repeat that. But exactly how this will play out on the electric vehicles so on one hand, I think Europeans are going to play tougher because, again, they cannot bargain away the auto industry. And also because now they believe they have a stronger hand vis-a-vis uh, -vis China because China depends on the European market a lot more now that the U.S. market is close to China and China needs exports to power its ongoing growth now that it's property sector is going through, is shrinking. Uh, so Europe believe that it can play tough with China. On the other hand, it's also hard to me, for me to see Europe play tough. One major reason is what you mentioned, Germany. Germany still is very dependent on China for growth, for sales and for growth and for prosperity. And especially the German auto industry. A few months ago, I visited Berlin and talked with people in the industry as well as German officials, uh, you know, economic trade officials. And they say 
Volkswagen, which competes with BYD in the same kind of mid-market segment, is very worried about losing market shares in China, losing market shares in third countries, and losing market shares in the home turf in Europe. So they're prompting their officials to do something about this and to look into the Chinese subsidies. But they also are very scared of Chinese retaliation. Uh, Last time I checked, I think about 40% of Volkswagen cars are sold in China. And then there are the luxury ones, the BMW, the Mercedes. I think they are still thinking that they are still kind of way bit uh, above the watermark, that they are in the market, in the luxury market, where BYD does not have a huge presence yet. So they might have still a few years before the Chinese competition comes. They're not willing to sacrifice this few years of growth and, and profit in China. So they're also advocating against any trade tension with China. What is your sense on how Beijing processes this external frustration with the exportation of its sort of industrial overcapacity machine? Is it their view that, fine, there's going to be some whinging in some foreign capitals, but like with the solar picture, ultimately, this is good for China, even if it invites some external pushback? I think you know, the last time I felt this amount of consternation in Europe was in 2016, after you had the Chinese Chinese takeovers of KUKA, the robotics company, and then ChemChina made made a bid for a, a German industrial company. And, and that was felt like a sea change in at least German views on China, announced the early phases of a sort of a strategic rethink about the relationship. It feels like that's happening now. You had the anti-dumping investigation announced, just the number of European voices who are worried about this deindustrialization. Do you think this is going to redirect Beijing's efforts, or do you think that they are well on the path to essentially trying to rush for global EB leadership and dominance, especially in global South markets, that they don't really care if there's going to be a bit of kvetching in, you know, in Brussels and, and Berlin? I don't think this will prompt fundamental change of behavior or calculation in China. One, because the Chinese playbook has always worked uh, in the Chinese mind. They achieved their objectives, right? So their industries have steadily climbed the technological and value chain. They have, you know, steadily, reliably created global, you know, not only domestic champions, but global leaders in in the industries that they uh, focus on. So I think there's no reason for them to doubt that this will be another success story. And then to extend that there are trade tensions that can be temporary. That said, I think China is looking at Europe, is preemptively looking at a, a number of avenues to address the perhaps upcoming potential tariffs. It will be a combination of sticks and carrots and evasion. So the sticks will be retaliation on you know, similar anti-dumping, anti-subsidy tariffs on European sectors, market denial to European exports, and perhaps even uh, you know, regulatory retaliation on European German car companies invested in China. And I think China now is also directing, has a whole of government approach, uh, directive to direct all the ministries Customs, trade, 
finance, diplomacy, transportation, to look at one both to facilitate and streamline the exports of electric vehicles, and two, to help them invest in production facilities overseas, hence in preparation for the tariffs and to be able to get around it. What is the next overcapacity story, do you think, in China? The more immediate one is semiconductor chips, perhaps the the legacy chips. So if you just look at how many facilities that are being built in China, as well as the rest of the world, there is just no question that massive overcapacity is will come down the pike very soon. The next big one probably will be airliners. China just debuted its first homegrown airliner in Singapore, and China has been trying to grow its own airline industry for decades, and its moment may have come. And I think Airbus and uh, Boeing will have to fight off Chinese competitors perhaps in a couple of years. Where would those markets be, do you think? Those, I'm imagining those are not in developed markets. Is that in the global south? You see that playing out? Mm-hmm. The global south is the natural market, but it was, I think that China will still focus a lot on the European market. And that has to do with with because one the, the developed countries just have a lot more purchasing power, right? So that's the priced market. And two, the US, I, I, I have no doubt with the US will design policy and barriers to keep Chinese airplanes out. And the US can do that because the US has a system that is not shy of being political. So the US can design policy just with the explicit goal of saying, we just want to keep the Chinese exports out, right? And then three, the U.S. has turned its back on WTO. So uh, the US has, U.S. has no issue with coming up with protectionist policy that run roughshod over WTO rules. And Europe is far from there yet. Europe uh, still is very you know, faithfully holding on to WTO rules that makes it harder to design protectionist policy. So even if uh, and also, you know, we discussed it before, Europe is not a single entity like the U.S. is. So to come up with a policy has to wrangle with all the different members that have different relationship with China and also different philosophical, different philosophy with, uh, about trade. Some are more laissez-faire, some are more comfortable, like France, with protectionism. Europe will be probably very slow coming up with some trade defense, if at all. So I would think that, yes, the developing countries is a natural market, but I expect that Chinese airlines to penetrate the European market to a degree as well. I'm way out of my zone of comfort here talking about Chinese commercial airliners, but I suppose I had it in my head that there would be a great deal of airliner and customer hesitation about getting on a C919 plane. Even if there were not explicit market barriers, I struggled to see major airliners picking up Chinese jets, even if they get regulatory approval. You sense that the market is more ripe than cynics like myself expect? It is a barrier, but it's far from insurmountable. I know it's not apple to apple. I think we had this skepticism about Korean cars, for example. We also now have the, we're skeptical about whether Western customers will embrace Chinese cars, right? Because Chinese products are always seen as low quality, shoddy, uh, unreliable. But that's changing. Also, I think in European market, we keep talking about European, we have to, again, be reminded it's not monolithic. Uh, You know, countries like 
Spain, where I am right now, Portugal, you know, Greece, they don't necessarily have the, the same view about Chinese products as like the sort of the blue chip consumers in Germany that not, or, or France and don't necessarily have that kind of a brand loyalty. And three, I think Chinese company, they're smart too. I don't exactly know what kind of sales and marketing strategy a Chinese airliner will deploy. But for example, with BYD, one strategy they've used to penetrate the European market and, and raise their brand awareness is to, to go after the rental companies first, the car rental company. Right? So rather than dealing directly with consumers. So the rental company, they're less brand loyal. They care about a good deal. Through that way, they give the the driver's exposure to their cars and hence kind of lower down that resistance to their products. And China's never, never one someone should underestimate. As you say, we've seen this before where there's a, a view that China can't innovate. And now suddenly the story we're having now is about really fantastic EVs that China's producing at a lower cost that are out in the international marketplace. Yenmei, thank you so much for this conversation. For listeners, a few of the things we discussed today are client notes, but do want to recommend that folks go read Yenmei's really good Financial Times op-ed, which is called China's Cull of EV Overcapacity Will Bring Little Relief to Europe. Yenmei, really appreciate this, really appreciate the conversation, and hope to see you in person sometime soon. My pleasure, Jude. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 